Imagine this with me. The lights come up. A woman's body is illuminated. Her skin is golden. You can't quite make out a face, arms, legs, but her torso is unmistakably feminine. Full breasts sit atop the curve of a rounded abdomen, which then blooms into ample hips and thighs. You couldn't get more female than this, says the man who discovered her, not on Instagram, but in a cave in southern Germany 12 years ago. His team named her the Venus of Holofels, after the Roman goddess of love and beauty. Like other so-called Venus sculptures, the Venus of Holofels has no head, hands, or feet. This is by design, argue scholars, rather than a byproduct of time. The sculptures are about reproduction, hence the focus on a woman's secondary sex organs. To be fair, other scholars have put forth recently that these sculptures were actually made by women during the Stone Age, and the exaggerated form comes from their viewpoint of looking down at their own bodies. They argue the lack of face, a very modern signifier of personal identity in a historian's view, is not a form of dehumanization. It's because mirrors wouldn't be invented for another 30,000 years. I'm Amy Porterfield, and this is Talking Body. Throughout history, women have not only served as inspiration for art and design, but our bodies themselves have become the canvas on which society paints its desires. In China, during the Song Dynasty, the emperor saw a dancer perform an intricate routine atop a lotus flower, made possible by her impossibly small pointed feet. For the next thousand years or so, until its abolishment in 1912, women would bind their young daughter's feet by first bending the small toes under, then twisting the entire foot into a crescent moon shape and wrapping it tightly with fabric. The experience, as you can imagine, was excruciating, but after a few years, the girl's feet would go numb and she would be left with the ideal petal-shaped foot of around three inches in length or about the size of a credit card. Of course, this made any movement apart from delicate padding around the house impossible, but that may have been part of the allure. Bound feet were a symbol of class and status, and therefore only available to women who did not have to labor. While the Chinese government was moving toward abolishing foot binding for women, across the continent in Victorian England, the binding was becoming more extreme. The corset, the foundation of Western women's fashion, had moved beyond accentuating an hourglass figure to promoting an ideal S-shape for women's bodies, one that twisted a woman's posture so that her chest pushed forward, her hips backward, and her waist all but disappeared. The true S-shaped physique, one where your waist was no bigger than your hand, was really only achievable for upper-class women with maids to help cinch them in. Meanwhile, working-class women settled for a more traditional corset until they couldn't. Motherhood may have been prized by Victorian society as the peak of female achievement, but the actual act of being pregnant was a shameful affair, usually necessitating a seclusion period for the expecting mother, an exile that lasted until well after the child was born. Working women would expect to be fired once their pregnancy was discovered out of fear that they would reduce productivity. You can actually find newspaper advertisements from that era with illustrations of ostensibly pregnant women bound into a flat-fronted corset promising, quote, a virtually normal shape and a no-maternity appearance. The common thread through this brief history of modifying women's bodies is the restriction of movement, the shrinking of the self. There's no way to disconnect this idea from class. It was nearly impossible for a woman who worked outside of the home to attain the level of ornamental beauty that a richer woman could devote her entire day to achieving. 
What about now? People often jokingly refer to things like spanks and stilettos as modern forms of female shackling. And while a lifetime of wearing high heels does have the potential to disfigure your feet, I think we can agree that women in 2021 have more freedoms in their personal appearance than ever before. Still, beauty is considered a luxury good. An upper middle class woman, if she works, is most likely to work in an office type job that requires little physical effort. She commits her leisure time and money to trendy exercise classes in order to keep her muscles active. She spends, on average, about $4,000 a year on makeup and skincare, and several thousand more on injectables and procedures to warp her body into its most ideal form. So what is that ideal form? Surely there's not just one, right? Who I think has the ideal body uh, driven by society and the internet, uh, that has to be the Kardashians, right? Like that, that's like number one. Kim Kardashian. The Kardashians. Kylie Jenner. A Kardashian. I feel like the ideal body type now is sort of the Kim Kardashian look. I promise that was not scripted. Nearly every single woman we interviewed for this podcast named Kim Kardashian and her sisters as having the ideal body type. Whatever you think of them, the Kardashians have built an American empire off a very specific and mostly unattainable hyper-feminine appearance. Large breasts, thick hair, full lips, a small waist with a flat stomach, narrow shoulders, willowy arms. That's to say nothing of Kim's most prized feature, a butt so iconic it once broke the internet. To be fair to Kim, while she definitely benefits from her sex symbol status, she also takes steps to expose the artifice behind it. She regularly posts behind-the-scenes images to her Instagram, featuring her breasts hoisted up to her shoulders by industrial tape, her trick of wearing two pairs of Sphinx and a waist trainer. How wonderfully appropriate that the Kardashians have found a way to bring corsets back in vogue, and the many shades of contour makeup she uses to carve out her face. It's as if she's saying, don't worry, regular people, I don't even look like this. The question is, if Kim Kardashian, whose enterprise is built on her beauty, doesn't really look like that, what hope is there for the rest of us? I'd argue that while we no longer crush our organs or rearrange our toes, we have never been more focused on all of the supposed imperfections of our appearance. It's no longer enough to look young and fertile, the genesis of so many cultural beauty standards. We have new things to worry about. Hip dips, bat wings, tear troughs. And if you don't know what those are, for your own well-being, I suggest you don't look them up. Unfortunately, most women have some kind of experience with trying to alter their body, rarely for reasons of comfort or health. I was about eight years old the first time I went to a Weight Watchers meeting. My mom had been going my whole life. Joining her was practically a rite of passage. Even at that age, I was self-conscious about my body. I had grown up hearing men make comments about women's bodies, specifically their weight. Criticisms I had immediately overlaid on top of my child body. Did I have roles? Were my thighs too big? As much as it could be for any child, attending Weight Watchers was actually my idea. I remember walking into those meetings, being the only child in there. There was nobody that looked like me that was even close to my age. And all the women would fawn over me. Good for you. That's so great that you're doing this so young. It was very wildly accepted. Two years later, when I was 10, I experienced a pivotal change in my relationship with my body. I was participating in a talent show with a handful of my friends. We had a whole dance routine choreographed to Madonna, of course, and we were so excited. My mom, bless her heart, she took us all to the mall to pick out matching outfits for the performance. The vision was a pair of turquoise and white shorts with a turquoise top covered in rhinestones. In our defense, it was the 80s. 
We found the perfect outfit at a store specifically for preteens. And while all of my friends immediately found their sizes and headed for the dressing rooms, I was mortified to find that the largest size the store had carried still didn't fit me. I had developed early, I was already a head taller than my friends, and my body looked more like a teenager's body than a fifth grader's. While my friends put on an impromptu fashion show in front of the mirrors, my mom took me, quietly sobbing, to the adult clothing store across the mall. We'll find you something that matches, she promised. We didn't. You're just taller than the other girls. You'll look like the leader on stage. I wasn't convinced. In fact, the only thing I was convinced of that day in the mall was that my body was different, freakish, too big, too fat. Thus began a life of dieting, of trying to break my body into submission. I can break down all the different phases of my life by the diets that I've tried. Around the same time as the talent show incident, I tried the grapefruit diet, so-called because it involves subbing out calories for grapefruit in every single meal. In high school, I moved on to the cayenne pepper diet. And in college, I took FenFen, a prescription weight loss drug that worked pretty well until it was pulled from the market for its unfortunate side effect of sending users into cardiac arrest. Any fad diet you can imagine, I've tried it at some point in my life, up to and including surgery. All right, this is the part where I get more embarrassed than ever. I hate admitting this. I've never even spoken about this publicly. I'm sweating even thinking about it. After I quit my job to start my own business, I got lap band surgery. For those of you who don't know, lap band is a procedure where they wrap a silicone balloon around the top part of your stomach to artificially reduce the volume that you can eat. Typically, your stomach can hold about six cups of food max, but a lap band reduces this to about half a cup. You eat less, you get full fast, and you lose weight. And I lost weight. My dad paid for the surgery to support my dream, and because he believed, like I did, that being conventionally attractive would help me in my business. I lost 80 pounds in a year. I felt amazing on the outside, but my body began eating away at itself on the inside. I developed stomach ulcers so awful that I often threw up after even drinking a glass of milk. One of my worst memories is throwing up outside of a Home Depot in my fanciest dress after a four-star dinner to celebrate my one-year anniversary of being married to my husband. In that moment, he looked at me and said, nothing is worth this. Less than two years later, after getting the surgery, I had to have the band removed and I gained back all of the weight. Poring over all the ways women have distorted their bodies throughout history and then reviewing the brutal treatment I've subject my own body to, it's made me furious. Dear listener, what are we doing to ourselves? I reached out to Professor Philippa Diedrichs, a psychologist who specializes in how we view our own bodies to try and get to the bottom of this. She leads a team of researchers at the Center of Appearance Research in Bristol, England, where they investigate psychological and social influences on body image. Well, hey there, thank you so much for being here today. I'm just absolutely honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Amy. It's really exciting to be here to talk to you today. I mean, such an important topic and you have so much value to share, especially for what we're doing here on this show. So I'm just going to get right to it. And my first question is that you've said that one of the overall goals of your work is to change the ideal of female beauty. And can you break that down for us? Like, what is the ideal of female beauty and how does it affect us and how do you want to change it? Yeah, well, I guess um, I probably don't need to do much description um, in terms of defining the female beauty ideal, because I think most women can bring it to mind immediately. Um, if I just say the um, question to you, what does society tell us the perfect look looking woman looks like? 
Um, and I've done that exercise with lots of women and girls around the world. And they very quickly tell us this very long list of attributes. There are obviously slight variations culturally and depending on different groups that you talk to, but typically what we hear is that it's a very narrowly defined ideal that is really unachievable and unrealistic for any one of us to meet all of the criteria when it comes down to our height, our weight, how our hair should look, how our skin should look, the size of our hands and feet, our fingernails, our eyelashes. Pretty much it covers every aspect has been kind of um, monetized and commodified, I guess, um, in, in terms of how we should look. And what we see consistently in the research when we ask people that question, but also when we look at how beauty ideals are portrayed in media, for example, what we see overwhelmingly, it's very narrowly defined and very unrealistic for most of us to achieve. Um, so what uh, and why that's a problem really is that we see that as a result of when we start to buy into that ideal and take it on board as our own personal standard of beauty for ourselves and other people, it often um, results in us being really dissatisfied and ashamed of our bodies and feeling a whole host of negative emotions um, and really moving away from where we want everyone to be, which is really appreciating and respecting our bodies and taking good care of them. Um, and so it's really important that we address this because we know that when um, people, particularly women and girls, experience body image concerns, it affects all key areas of their lives, whether it's their health, their education, their career aspirations um, and their relationships. So that's why I'm really passionate about trying to disrupt that ideal um, and to encourage women and girls to appreciate their bodies no matter how they look and to appreciate their own individual beauty in whatever way they want to express that. Okay, so when you say appreciate your body, so on this show, Talking Body, I'm the student. I am not anywhere near the expert and I struggle with self-acceptance and self-love. And, and I have since I was a little girl. So when you say to learn how to accept yourself and learn how to love yourself, do you think you can accept yourself and appreciate your body and still want to change it? Like as an adult, get Botox or breast implants or whatever it might be, uh, hair extensions, whatever. Do you think those two can live together? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, you know, I'm sorry to hear that that's been something that you've struggled with, but uh, you know, always. as you know, um, you're not alone in that. In fact, you know, since the mid eighties, researchers have been saying that it's now more normal for women and girls to not like the way that they look and their appearance than it is for us to experience positive body image. And so when we talk about positive body image, you will often hear people talking a lot about self-love and about body love. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at the body positive movement, there's some quite strong statements. When in, in terms of what psychologists think about positive body image, we're actually more talking about body respect and body appreciation. And really it's, you don't have to love every aspect of your body to have positive body image, but it's about overall having, um, listening to your body giving it what it needs, protecting it from outside pressures and, and um, other harmful influences, and um, really trying to see your body more as a positive influence on your life. And that's not just in terms of how it looks, but also what it can do and how it functions. When we start to think about body modification or wanting to change our bodies, it's a little bit more complex. And it really depends on what the motivations are for doing that. Um, and so if the motivations are for to be playful, to express yourself, um, to have fun with color, with texture, with pattern, that's absolutely fine. The problem though exists is that currently in society, we have lots of rules and norms and cultural pressures, some of which are very kind of subliminal and not explicit, which suggests to us that we need to do that in a certain way if we want to be validated or we want to be seen as attractive and beautiful. And there can be penalties for us if we don't adhere to that and engage in all of those practices. And so that's when it becomes tricky because on the surface, um, we might feel like, oh, when I do my makeup, when I do my hair or I have Botox or whatever, it makes me feel better about myself. It makes mm -hmm. me feel more confident which is great in the short term, but then it's thinking about the longer term aspects of that is why is that? Why do I feel more confident and comfortable when I do those things? And is that because actually overall, where did I get the idea of doing that? 
And where did I get the idea that I look better when I do those things or feel better? And often that's when we start to see there's a lot of um, other people who benefit from that. We may benefit a bit, but we, you know, in the longer term, there's lots of other people that benefit from it. And also we can get into a tricky position where we don't feel good about ourselves if we don't do those things. I and think of course, I get sorry, that. just one other bit to add, which was explained to me um, recently, it was I thought was an interesting way of thinking about it, was um, the gender beauty gap. And so why is it that so many women and girls do these things? Of course, men do some of these things to an extent, but it's disproportionately women. And then think about all the time, money, resource we oh. invest in it, even just the headspace. And then think, okay, if, you know, as an individual, I might do that. That might take me half an hour a day, a couple of hours out of my week. Multiply that by the millions of billions of women around the world and girls that are doing that in terms of our time, our money and resource. And then you start to think, hmm, is it worth it to be doing all of that? So it's a complicated story, I think. Ah, makes perfect sense. I mean, the time I focus on this, whether thinking about it or doing something about it, wanting to look a certain way is really sad when I, when I think about it. And when you talk about it in these terms, and in addition to that, we're in a pandemic right now. And I read an article about how the plastic surgery industry is booming right now. And they attribute it partly because so many people are seeing themselves on zoom and their reflection is back on them. And right away, I got that because for the last 11 years, I've done video to grow my online marketing business. And as I age, I, and we're going to talk about age in this interview for sure. And I need to talk about it with you because I see videos of myself 10 years ago and I think, oh my gosh, I look so different. I see all the wrinkles. I see the aging. And back then though, this is the important part. I thought I needed to look different. I thought I needed to look better. I thought I needed all the things that I need now. And so I haven't changed at all, but I look very different now. So video, I think is perpetuating some of this. Would you agree? Yeah, I think there's all sorts of things going on with this at the moment. Yes, part of it is, yeah, we're on video and we're on a screen. Yeah. And obviously, if we compare the way we look on a screen to, you know, um, celebrities or, you know, influencers, for example, who probably have a whole range of million lights around them, different filters and techniques, um, as well as, you know, spending a lot of time getting ready, then, of course, we're not going to look like that when I turn up at 9am for <laughs> my first Zoom call for the day. So our reference point is quite distorted in terms of who we're comparing ourselves to. <sighs> Interesting you point out comparing yourself to yourself back then, which I think is really interesting and you know we know as human beings it's human nature to compare ourselves to others or to compare ourselves to our past selves or our ideal future selves and really what happens is we just get so caught up in all of those thoughts that we're not really focusing on again the attention that gets diverted so if I'm worrying about what I look like right now talking to you that's diverting my attention away from this interesting conversation that we're having or me thinking about what I want yes. to say next or actually really listening to you. So that, that there's a real cost to that. But also I think, you know, with COVID and with lockdown, we're experiencing kind of unprecedented uncertainty um, as well as um, in some ways being hyper-connected, but also more socially isolated. And we know that kind of when we're lacking social support um, or we're feeling stressed or anxious, that can often manifest itself in wanting to change the way that we look because that feels like something that we can control. It feels like mm. something that we can control our bodies and manipulate um, to make ourselves feel good. But often it's a bit of a fallacy because like you said, you know, if you look back at pictures five years ago, you would have been wanting to look different. Yeah. Now you look back at it and you think, oh, I wish I looked like that. And it's like, you didn't win then and then didn't enjoy it. You're not enjoying it now. So it's just like ever changing ideal. So it kind yes. of, you know, I think, that's when with Zoom calls and everything like that, I think trying to, like you would in person, trying to really focus and listen to someone, have an engaging conversation and appreciate that conversation. And when you do that, you often completely forget what that person looks like or you're not really paying attention to any of that kind of stuff because you're like, this is an interesting person. I want to hear what they've got to say or, oh, I've got something interesting to contribute. Oh, so. so true. That is such a great, that's an aha moment for me, for sure, being more present. And if I would just stop worrying about how I look in that respect, I feel like I could add so much more value and get so much more value from my interactions. So 
So good. Okay. So looking at the landscape today of how women interact with their own bodies, we talk a lot about things like relationships and motherhood, but also issues that feel specific to this time, like social media and advertising. So based on your research, do you think there's things, do you think things are getting better or worse when it comes to body acceptance or body diversity? And how have things changed since say when our mothers were growing up? So I think it's a really interesting question. So we've already talked a little bit about comparisons and those basic human yeah. tendencies that we all have that, which have been around throughout history. Um, and using, you know, comparing yourselves to others as an example, I guess the thing that's different now is the source of those comparisons and who we compare ourselves to. So our mothers and our grandmothers, you know, they, they would have been comparing themselves potentially to models and film stars and things like that. Um, but they, the frequency at which they had the opportunity to make those comparisons was probably a lot less. It would have been when they were looking at a magazine, say, or, you know, when they were at the cinema or, you know, walking past a billboard. The difference now is social media, where we know that the vast majority of people also spend hours a day using it, is that we have those references for comparison all the time. And we're not just comparing ourselves to celebrities, but we're comparing ourselves to our peers or other people who also are only showing their highlight reels. Or we've got influences this kind of weird in between of real life as well as celebrity colliding. Um, and of course, social media, uh, you know, it's here to stay. It's not all bad. In fact, there's research that we've done recently, studies showing that when women look at particular content, it's actually beneficial for their body image and their mood. So, you know, one of the great things about social media is we can see um, and learn about lots of different people from all over the world or different backgrounds to us, different body sizes, different ages. And that is a really positive thing in terms of our body image. We can also follow accounts that like, you know, have uplifting content, which can be inspiring. What we tend to see in the research is that what's particularly problematic is passive scrolling. So if you're just online spending a lot of time scrolling through feeds, not actually doing the social elements of interacting with other people, um, not kind of creating your own uplifting content and things like that, that's when it becomes problematic. And it's like a, a minefield for all of those comparisons and getting caught up in what people look like and just seeing things as really one dimensional. And that is related to actually feeling more socially isolated, worse mood and worse body image. Oh, so true. Now, your research has touched on this idea of normative discontent or the idea that being unhappy with our bodies is becoming the standard instead of a deviation. And this, for me, is very, very true for, for, throughout my whole life. I never really thought of the concept of appreciating my body and accepting it and and loving it. That feels very radical to me. And so with this, um, where do you think this is coming from? This idea of being unhappy with our bodies is becoming the standard. Mm. So I think, you know, when we think about the very gendered nature of this problem as well, we know from the research that all genders experience body image concerns, but we know that women and individuals who identify as women and transgender and non-binary individuals are disproportionately affected. Um, and in fact, when we do research, um, with children as young as five years of age, we start to see that gender difference already with girls saying that they, you know, they score worse on self-esteem, they score worse on body image than boys. And so there's certainly a very gendered aspect to this um, tied up into the feminist argument around patriarchy um, in the sense that um, women are highly valued in society for how they look. Uh, and we get a lot of what we call social capital. So that's, you know, where, our, where we stand in the pecking order of things, how we're treated by other people. Certainly we know that men can get that capital as well through their appearance, but they're also a lot more able to cash in on things like their wealth, their intelligence, um, their sense of humor and other things. Whereas for women, it's like, you know, you could have all of those things, but actually your appearance is central. And a classic example of that is when you look at newsreaders and you look at the appearance of newsreaders. Um, I know, it, um, you know, Australia, where I'm from, is particularly bad at this. When I watch the news in North America, um, I see this played out as well, where you'll see a lot more kind of diversity in the appearance of men but not so much in the women, they all look a certain way. Mm. So it's certainly very gendered. Um, we also know that it relates to class um, as well as race. Um, and 
we, you know, there's a lot of monetary value if you can show that you can take good care of your appearance it, you know you appear to be more respectable um, and potentially to be more affluent um, but also a lot of the ideals are also very racist and they kind of favor things such as you know um, straight hair or hair that kind of flows um, and moves around a lot um, it also favors depending on which country lighter skin tones um, or in some countries more tan skin tones um, so there's a lot of forces at play here. And of course, if we look at the beauty industry, the diet industry, um, the fitness industry, they're, they're industries that um, many brands are kind of predicated on this idea of selling you the idea that you could always look better. Um, and they're very much positioned as look better to feel better, rather than kind of starting off with the, you know, why don't you see beauty as kind of playful or fun or self-expression or in terms of fitness that I want to feel strong or I, you know, want to wake up with more energy in the morning. Um, so there's a lot of different forces out there. And then at the day-to-day -day level, social media, of course, but also our parents, our families, how we grew up, um, as well as our peers can also play a role in reinforcing all of that. Oh, so very true. Okay. So I've heard you talk about weight bias before. What is weight bias and how can we better examine our own thoughts to see if we're subconsciously carrying the weight bias? Yeah. So weight bias really refers to um, when we make assumptions or judgments about another person based upon their weight. And what we typically see is that this is kind of disparaging attitudes and behaviors towards people in larger body sizes. Uh, the interesting thing about when you, it's very prevalent. So in, in um, the US, it's the fourth most common form of discrimination to discriminate um, against someone based upon their weight. It's also um, legal to do this in most places around the world. Um, and where we see it get played out, it can be played out in beauty standards, like in terms of, you know, the favorable characters that we see in media from children's media all the way through to adult media, where the characters that are thin or muscular are in the more positive roles, they're more likable, um, for example, whereas the larger weight characters are much more likely to be shown to be eating, to be stupid, to be lazy, um, to be the silly one. But it actually has real repercussions, repercussions as well when we look at employment, for example. There's research showing that larger weight individuals are penalized in terms of their salaries. Um, so on average earn less than, than lower weight counterparts despite having the similar qualifications and experience. The same with grades at school. Um, in healthcare settings, um, there's research showing that um, individuals and in larger bodies are much more likely to um, get unsolicited um, advice from health professionals about how to change their body, um, to be laughed at, to have jokes. And so it can seem to be something that's, you know, kind of trivial or sometimes people think, well, you know, don't we need to motivate people to, you know, be these people to be unhappy with their bodies um, because, you know, they're not healthy. When in actual fact, the research shows the opposite. If you experience weight-based prejudice and discrimination, which could also be weight-based teasing at school, so teasing someone about their weight, you're much more likely to have a problematic relationship with food, with exercise, um, much higher cortisol and stress levels. And that's associated with experiencing the stigma and discrimination, irrespective of what your body weight is. Um, and actually it has relates to depression, a resistance to physical activity, and it really disrupts that person's relationship with their body if they're always feeling shame. Um, and so it's something that's really prevalent. And actually the scary thing about it is it's socially acceptable. So it's actually socially acceptable to criticize someone or to make a joke about someone based upon their body weight, which shows just really how pernicious weight bias is. Oh, so very true. I remember growing up, I was a cheerleader and I've always been a bigger girl and I would dread the cheerleading um, physicals that we'd have to do at the school and we'd all have to stand in line and they'd look over our paperwork and they'd look at my weight on the paper and it was always a man and he'd only say to me, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. And I'm going to guess I was a size 12 in high school and I know that that was something that I carry with me to this day. I dieted extensively in high school because of it. And so when you talk about this, this weight bias, like he didn't look, he didn't even look at me or understand my health or how I ate or how I worked out. None of it. He looked at a number and said, oh, you're overweight. 
Yeah. And we see that, um, you know, there are BMI report cards at school that get sent home um, to parents to say your child is overweight. Um, You know, I similar experiences. I can remember being weighed. I can't remember what the reasons were, but at primary school and um, I can remember feeling kind of shame or like this embarrassment of us all lined up doing that. Uh, But I even face that now when I go to the doctor um, so here in the UK, we've got the amazing National Health Service, um, and I will go to see my GP and doctor, and it might be a different person each time. It's a free service that we get here. Um, and so, and I'll, you know, might be presenting, um, you know, I had scoliosis when I was younger, so I have a lot of back issues, um, or I might be just going to get, you know, a regular prescription. And often if I see someone that, you know, I haven't seen before, um, depending on what it is, a class, it would be the contraceptive pill. They'll immediately go, you know, your BMI is this, you probably should lose a little bit of weight. Little do they know who they're talking to. Um, <laughs> but even in that situation, sometimes I still feel a lot of shame. And I'm someone who, you know, this is my job to advocate for this and to research it. But when you're in that position and there's a power hierarchy, you can feel very vulnerable, let alone when you're a child. And um, they're getting a warning that flashes up on their screen to say, based upon my weight, I'm at risk for these certain things. But of course, they haven't then looked at my blood pressure, my cholesterol levels. They hasn't. They haven't asked me, and they don't know that I actually work out three to four times a week. Um, they don't know what I'm eating. They don't actually have this comprehensive assessment of my health. And you know, the national health system's under pressure. They have to make decisions quickly. Um, but it's also what are the repercussions of that? And when we know that actually it's worse for health if you feel stigmatized because of your weight, you're not going to engage in health behaviors. And there's often no recommendation. It's like, you need to go and lose weight, go and do that. Well, I'm sorry, but the research shows that 95% of diets fail. We don't have long-term effective you know, things for weight loss if that's actually gonna be a benefit to my health. So where does that leave me? And meanwhile, we have high rates of disordered eating. And this is in the context where we know that the vast majority of women and girls already feel shame about their bodies. So it's just, a, you know, it's, it's really complicated, but that idea of making judgments about someone's health based upon a number or based upon their, how they look is really problematic. So there's this culturally accepted idea that advertisers and fashion labels and TV shows all use extremely thin augmented airbrush models because that's what sells. That it's about money and acknowledging the cynicism behind this can somehow excuse the damage these images can cause. When you were working on your PhD, you conducted an experiment to see if that common wisdom held true. This is so interesting. I loved hearing you talk about this. So I want you to talk about it here. Can you walk us through what you created for that experiment and what you ultimately found? So kind of looping back to when we spoke about, you know, my goal was to change the idea. Well, this is where I started out in my PhD. And as you said, one of the reasons um, that industry or advertisers said that they wouldn't show more diversity in terms of how people were represented, they were said, well, thinness cells or, you know, looking like conforming to these beauty ideal cells. So in my PhD, um, which um, mirrors some other research that's been done by colleagues like Emma Halliwell and that's subsequently been replicated, there's now um, dozens of studies which have found the same thing. We basically show different groups of consumers. They were randomly assigned whether they looked at advertisements that featured the more traditional kind of um, beauty standards to those who saw models of, I was looking at body size, so diverse body sizes. And we looked at not only how did that make consumers feel about their own bodies, but also their reactions to the, the adverts and the brands and the kind of the consumer sentiment associated with that. Perhaps unsurprisingly, we found that when um, consumers look at the more diverse images, they either feel better about their bodies or they just feel neutral. Um, Whereas those who saw the kind of traditional idealized felt worse about their bodies. But in terms of consumer reactions, we found that they were perceived to be equally effective. um, The advertisements that showcase greater diversity. So it really disrupted that idea that you have to show, you know, these kind of very prescriptive beauty ideals for it to be appealing to consumers. Since then, I, you know, I did that a long time ago. I finished my PhD in 2010, and it's now a lot more common to see brands showing greater diversity, which is amazing. Um, and they're often brands that are very, very successful at doing that. So we also have the business case to show that you can, um, you know, show a broader representation of people and still do well at business. 
The key though is um, consumers are increasingly skeptical about that. So it needs to be authentic. You can't just do a one-off campaign um, showing people of color or showing women in larger bodies or older people. You need consistency and authenticity because consumers are gonna see right through it and see it as tokenistic. Yes, so very true. The one area I'm struggling with a lot, and I would love it if you had any insight in this area, is that I can't figure out if me showing up on video with hair and makeup done, which is 90% of the time for me, I come from a family of a mom who never went to the grocery store without looking her best and a dad that was very much into appearance. And when I lost weight, he'd say, you have the whole world ahead of you now kind of thing. So I was, it was ingrained in me, Mm -hmm. but I, when I show up for video, I do tons of video in my business. When I show up on a Facebook live with my audience, I feel better. I feel more confident if I've put in effort into my appearance, Mm -hmm. but I think that's gotten very blurred with, I think people will like me more if I look better. I can't figure out where the line is. And I think I've taken it too far, but it's very true. If you had me show up on this interview, like, you know, just like what I woke up with, I think I might've scared you. My hair was everywhere, no makeup, all that. I wouldn't feel confident in interviewing you right now. Where's the line? Yeah, it's it's really hard because actually people do judge us based upon how we look. We, you know, we know that that's the case. And I guess it's almost like setting yourself mini behavioral challenges. And it's thinking about, well, is this a problem for you? And why might it be a problem? So is it a problem for you personally? And also, you know, if you had a daughter or a niece or a young girl in your life, would you want them to feel that same pressure to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's kind of a pressure, you know, you do it because it makes you feel good, but even just you, that you have to do it at all. And so, you know, I think it's also you can set yourself mini behavioural challenges as well. Like it's not to say that the message here isn't that don't wear makeup, don't, you know, do your hair or do whatever makes you feel good. But the message is if you feel like you have to do that and from what you're saying, it's suggesting that you feel like, you know, you need to do that to feel good about yourself or to feel confident or to feel prepared. Um, and then it's just subtly interrogating why that is. And then what would happen one day if you didn't, you know, if you did everything, but you didn't wear the lipstick, <laughs> like right. you just wore a gloss or you just, you know, you tied your hair back or you could set yourself little, what I call behavioral challenges and see what happens and you know see how you feel once you get into the flow of things and once you're talking because you're obviously really passionate about what you do and talking to people and you know I'm sure that that will start to override because you'll be engaged in what you're doing and it's like you're not necessarily saying all or nothing but you can be doing little things along the way and sometimes you might want to do all of that I went through a phase a couple of just before the holidays where I was so bored of wearing what I'd been wearing, working from home. I've been working from home for almost (laughs) a year now that, you know, I went and bought myself all these new shirts and tops and like I was wearing those and, you know, and I was wearing bright lipstick and things. And that was for me, it was a source of play, pleasure, something different. I didn't feel like I had to do that. Um, And equally I can turn up without doing all of those things, but it is hard. And I think it's about being kind to yourself as well. Um, being gentle and kind to yourself, recognizing those pressures, and then maybe every now and then just subtly challenging yourself to kind of disrupt that a little bit. Great advice. Cause I'd really like to find that middle ground, the, the honest place with all of that. Um, because one time I said to my audience, look, I don't, a lot of women in my audience don't want me. This is interesting. A lot of women in my audience don't want me to get ready and they wish I was more casual. They said, and I think that's a total reflection of them. Like if I don't do my hair or makeup, then they don't have to. And Mm -hmm. I want to say like, I do it for me. You do what's right for you. And I said that, like, I don't get ready in the morning for you. I do it for me. But then as I'm having these interviews on this podcast, I'm like, well, do I? Like, I need to examine that. Yeah. And I think having that self-reflection is really important because also you're in a position where people are looking up to you. They're looking to you for advice and, and, you know, and you're having influence on them. So although, you know, um, you might say, well, it just makes me feel good. That's what I was talking about before. It's like, well, it probably does, but why? And then what is the impact that that's having? And I think that the really important thing here though, is like, I don't want to, I don't want women to get into a space of criticizing each other um, and kind of 
being like, you know, and and because we all live in this society where these pressures exist, they're very real. And there's a lot of systems and hierarchies and um, people out there that benefit from us all being in this position. So the idea is not to criticize other women to build them up, but also to be supportive such that if you did turn up one day without that, I'm no doubt you probably would maybe get some comments because people aren't used to seeing you like that. Um, but also it just mixes things up and changes things up to, to do that. And I think just I think the fact so. that you're thinking about it is the step in the right direction. And then it's like at some point, you know, you might want to go a step further and challenge yourself on that. Or even just by having these conversations and thinking critically about why we do these things is important. I think thinking critically about why we do these things, that's a big lesson because I look at people like Rachel Hollis or Glennon Doyle, where sometimes they're made up and sometimes they're not based on how they feel. And I respect that and love that. So if I'm drawn to that, then there's something there that I probably need to explore within myself. And even we started this conversation like Botox or wanting to lose weight or whatever it might be, you were saying, you've got to look at the reason why behind behind it and, and make sure that you're really honest with yourself around that. I think that is such an important lesson. And also when you're having those, like when you're thinking that it's also weighing up, is that worth it? Oh. Like, and what do I, what are the costs associated with me doing this? Because I may do it. And like I said, it may, you know, make you feel good in that moment, but you know, if you don't mind me asking how much time do you spend doing that before yeah. you get ready? Um, and then Such multiply and then multiply that by five days a week or however many times a year you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you start to add that up, you start to think, wow, but I bet you there's a long list of things that you want to do in your life um, and goals you want to achieve. And it's like, okay, well, can I dedicate half of that time or half of that money or half of that energy to those other things and do it, just try it for like a week or two and see how that shifts and how does it feel? And, you know, any type of behavior change can feel a little bit uncomfortable um and like the goals that we have can you know or sometimes we will do things that make us feel uncomfortable if we know that it's going to have a positive impact on society or other people and so it's kind of subtly getting out of that comfort zone but also make sure you've got support because um you know you want to surround yourself with people who are going to like you no matter how you look um as well and they're the people that really matter and if you think about I think the other thing is what I try and do is get people to think about all the, like their best friends or their role models or the people that they look up to. And for the most part, I would say 98% of it is going to be nothing to do with how they look. It's yes. going to be because of their values, what you learn from them that are fun to be around that, you know, there's so many other attributes that when you think about who are the people that you, you know, that inspire you, that uplift you, that make you feel like a better person, it is probably nothing or very little to do with how they look. And that's also probably what people get out of you as well. And the people that don't get that out from you and that they are preoccupied with how you look, it's like, well, you know, are you worth my time? Are you worth that half an hour of my time a day I spend putting this on so that you will like me? Are you worth the thousands of dollars I spend a year to look this way? Well, actually, you know, no, you're not. The worth it, I wrote it down. Is it worth it? Are they worth it kind of thing? That's a great question because yeah, if I spend 30 minutes every morning getting ready to do my hair and makeup and then the lashes, the hair appointments, all of that, you're right. I could get so much time back. And I know this sounds arrogant, but I often think, damn, I could run the world if I could get all the time back thinking about my weight or how I look. Of course, we just think about girls and women, non-binary individuals all around the world. Like just get into your moment now, think about how much time we spend as individuals. Then think about if you add our friends and then, you know, any girls in our lives and multiply that. And then just imagine all of that energy channeled into other things. I can't, I can't even express my excitement for that opportunity or if that were to happen. So if I could be a catalyst for myself and others to, to get a little bit closer there, I mean, watch out world, here we come. So, and it's also thinking about this, where our sources of self-esteem and feeling good come from. So you said that you feel good when you do it and, you know, fine, but you can also feel good in lots of other ways that actually, you know, might be in better alignment with your values and of what you want to achieve. 
will be sources of feeling good. So it's not like, okay, if you stop doing that, you're going to feel bad. You may for a little bit because you're not used to seeing yourself like that, or you're still, you know, we're all still unlearning all of these things that we've kind of been embedded in us since we were young. That's going to take time, but you can supplement that with the positive things that you are getting out of it through conversations like this or the time that you're going to get back or the money that you're going to get back as well. And then not to say though, do it and be playful. But if you're always doing things that are trying to lead you to look more like the ideal, um, so, um, and it's not playful and it's always like, oh, I have to do this to make my eyes look bigger or I have to do this to make me look younger or I have to do this to make me look more feminine. If it's those subtle things, like just thinking through the practices that we engage in, um, and why, like, why is it that we always want our eyes to look big and open? And it can be because we want to look rested and things like that, but it can also be because we want to, you know, the, the feminine ideal of kind of looking up and battering your eyelids and kind of being all innocent and kind of sweet. And so there's just so many little things involved in it that we take for granted. And it's just worth spending a couple of moments thinking about that and thinking, do we want to, you know, be a part of that or do we want to direct our attention elsewhere? <laughs> So, exactly. I cannot thank you enough for being on this show. I'm very honored and I got so much value from this personally, but I know our listeners will feel the exact same way. So thank you so very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And again, thank you for um, being vulnerable and sharing your own personal experiences as well. I really appreciate it. And I think lots of women will resonate with a lot of the things that you've said. I truly hope so. Thanks again. Thank you. You'll hear more from Dr. Diedrichs throughout the podcast because she is such a wealth of information on all the things we want to cover. Now, I really love what she said toward the end of that interview about setting little challenges for yourself that force you to rethink why you're changing certain things about your appearance. Am I doing it to be playful or to express myself? Or am I doing it because I feel I'll lose out on something if I don't? Starting this week, I'm going to set a challenge for myself once a day around my relationship with my body, how I present myself and how I talk about myself and how I talk to myself. Now, if you want to do the challenge as well, I want to know. So let me know on Instagram, hit me up in the DMs. I'm at Amy Porterfield. I want to hear from you and about your experiences with this challenge because my friend, we're all in this together. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche, Celia Ties, and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% chance production.